see you. Just want to uh, put an exclamation point. If you know anybody between 18 and 30, this is going to be a great retreat. It's only 50 bucks total. So 25 to get them in, and then uh, it's going to be awesome. We really believe God's doing something in this generation, and we really want to get behind it. we got a good group already going, and so it's going to be a wonderful weekend. Oh, man, it's good to see you all this morning. Well, today we are starting a new series, and we are going to, uh, uh, the series is going to be on suffering, kind of a, a light series, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, God, he has a good sense of humor. And so as I've been kind of preparing to start this series, I had to go through the suffering of watching my Trojans get destroyed yesterday by the Bruins. You know what I mean? So that's just the sense of God. So I'm in it, okay? I'm in it. I'm in the mood, okay? I feel like I'm suffering right now. Uh, there is a lot of different kind of suffering in this world. A lot of different kind of suffering. One of... The most difficult aspects to suffer is when you live deceived. When you live deceived and you are deceived into thinking that you are something that you're not, you suffer. When I was elementary school playground, third grade, all the boys at recess decided to have a race to see who was the fastest boy in the class. And I won that race. And I remember this kid coming to me afterwards, I don't remember his name anymore, but he was just like, man, I wish I, that your mama was my mama because I want your genes. You're super fast. And it got into my brain as a third grader that I'm super fast. You know what I'm saying? And that I am going to be fast. So then third, fourth, fifth grade, around the time there was the Olympics and I'm watching my family and I told my family, I'm going to be an Olympic sprinter because I'm super fast. And I'm going to win that medal. And it's just in my brain, right? And so my dad starts getting me on track clubs, and I get up there. And then it didn't help that in ninth grade, I won the ninth grade city uh, championship race, uh, 400 meters. Now, this is a smaller city, you know what I'm saying? But I am a ninth grade city champion. I am on my way to become a living because I'm super fast, right? And I'm living this deception. I get into high school, and my coaches, my dad's like, yeah, you're fast, but you're not that fast. I'm like, oh, I'll get there. I'm going to be an Olympian. I'm super fast. I got good genes. It was about 19 that I finally got the bubble burst. About 19 years old, I'm in an invitational, running that 400 meters. I'm on a, a team that running the 4x400. Four I'm the third leg. And uh, getting ready, and it so happens when I got the baton, there was, we were about half, uh, middle of the pack. Some teams were ahead of me, some teams were behind me, and I'm like, I'm going to catch all these dudes because I'm super fast, right? I'm on my way to Olympians. Well, Right um, as uh, the, the race gets started, about the second leg, this dude runs out from underneath the stands, and the announcer's like, we got a surprise for you all. We have an actual a U.S. Olympian who was a bronze medalist in the last Olympics. He is here because he's getting a workout, and he's jumping into this relay so, you know, you can watch an Olympian run. And it just so happens this dude was the third leg of the race. He had worked it out with the team, like it, he wanted a bad team, so because he wanted to be able to have to catch everybody to push him, because he knew that he was faster than everybody, so he's like, so, you know, like, yeah, dude, you can run with us, yeah, you know, and so, but they held it low-key so people wouldn't go crazy, and so I step on the track to get ready to get the baton, and this dude, he's six foot four, he's standing right next to me, I'm like, this is an Olympian, 
Y'all, this dude's muscle mass on one of his legs was greater than the muscle mass in my entire body, okay? But his team is behind mine. And so on mine, I'm like, well, if I'm going to be Olympian, it's time right now. This guy, you know, I take the baton and I just take off. About 120 meters into 400 meters, you hear the whole crowd go, whoa, as this dude just, boom, by me. He was super fast. Totally lost the race, and it was finally there that I said, I am not ever going to be an Olympian. If I would have just listened, people said that it was like watching him pass me was like watching a horse uh, chase a dog. You know, it was just kind of that kind of a, he was so, he was just in a different, see, if I would have just listened to my coaches and I was younger, I wouldn't have carried this thing and losing that and realizing I wouldn't have suffered as much. I would have been like, dude, I just got smoked by an Olympian. That's cool, right? I would have got his autograph. Uh, there are different kinds of suffering that we all endure in life. There's the suffering of disappointment, of loss, persecution, mockery, relational dysfunction, family suffering. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this whole area of suffering and pain that we endure day in and day out. We're going to look at uh, what the Scripture has to say about the different kinds of suffering and how God views them and how we're to understand it. We're going to get real about our suffering. We're going to get real about God's leadership and guidance in our suffering. Today, we're going to start with the suffering of sin and the pain of deception. If you're able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We are in uh, Romans chapter 7. We are starting in verse 14. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong, it is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the Spirit. 
Lord Jesus, we come to you today because we need you. You're the only doctor that can cure the sickness in our souls. We are here because without you, we will destroy ourselves and each other. Come, Lord Jesus, and open up our hearts and our minds that we would hear your words. Because these words that were just read, Lord, we know that they're not just words on a piece of paper or a screen. They are your words given with your spirit that we would know you, that we would know how to have a relationship with you, that we would know how to live a life of healing and wholeness, a life that only you offer us. So Jesus, we're hungry. Please feed us. We're thirsty. Please give us the drink. We are sick. Please give us medicine. Take away our apathy. Take away our casualness. Wake up our souls to the reality of what's going on and to the reality of your power and your goodness. We need you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. 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 You can take a seat. The letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome is one of the, his deepest, richest theological writings that we have. Paul is writing this as he is in prison. And this dude has experienced some of the worst suffering a human could experience in life. This dude, as a young man, he was rising to the top in his society, but then he decided to follow Jesus. And in that day, in that culture, you follow Jesus and you are thrown to the bottom. This dude experienced systemic oppression. This dude was hunted by the systems of his day. The people in power wanted him dead. He was labeled a marginalized freak for believing in Jesus. And so because of that, he became very poor. He was hungry at times. He was on these ships where these massive storms would wreck the ship, and he was stranded on an island for long periods of times. He was beaten regularly. He was whipped with whips. People gathered around him and threw rocks at him to kill him, and they thought he was dead because they had knocked him out, throwing these big stones at him. And then the Lord just brought him back to life. And of course, at the time that he's writing this letter, he is in prison. In a time and in a culture where there was no prisoner rights. In a, he was in a brutal prison. Yet, after all the suffering he's experienced, in the deepest of all of his letters theologically, he puts more emphasis into the suffering of sin than in any kind of other suffering. As you heard, he gets really personal. Did you guys you hear that? I wanted to include these words at the end of chapter 7 before we get into chapter 8 because I think we can connect with him. He starts by saying that the trouble in our lives is not the law. And he, what he means is not the law like the, like the legal laws. He means God's laws that we find in the scripture. He says the trouble is not God's law. The trouble is you and me. Why would he say this? Why would he say the trouble is not with God's law? Well, because he had, he's just finished, before the text we read, showing how God's law taught us what was right and wrong, taught us what sin and evil is. If God never got involved in our lives, we would have a very elementary understanding of what is wrong and right, what is evil and good. God gets involved and he says, for example, it is evil to covet other people. It is wrong to go, oh, I, I want that. I want that life that that person has. I want that marriage that person has. I want the stuff that that person has. I want the reputation that that person has. That's evil and wrong. In fact, many people who haven't heard God's laws, they don't think that that's wrong. We wouldn't know it's wrong if God didn't tell us. 
I mean, people will freely covet or want what other people have. They just call it being inspired by other people or being ambitious or being competitive and eventually live in ways that destroy themselves and their family because they're never happy with what they have or who they are. They always covet and want. But God gets involved and he tells us that that's wrong and tells us all kinds of things that are right and wrong. And there's a thing, because he does that, suffering is, gets worse for us. It makes for more suffering in our life at first because now we have increased guilt. Now we have a standard. And when we can't meet that standard, we're going to feel bad like a failure. We're going to be fearful that God is mad at us, that he's going to punish us. People are going to judge us. Now some people in that place of like, oh my gosh, the standard's so high, some people as a way to get out of that feeling of insecurity, they'll just kind of take a casual look at the Ten Commandments, let's say, and they'll say, well... I don't really break any of those. They kind of forget about the coveting commandment, that nobody can get away from that one. They kind of ignore that one. But they go, you know, hey, I don't steal anymore. I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. I don't profane God's name. I, I worship the one true God. So I'm good. Thank you, God, that I am in a much better place than all those sinners over there. And in that feeling and in those words is the worst sin of them all, pride and self-righteousness. Amen? We take God's law... And we use it to sin even more. Then Jesus comes along and he makes it even worse. <laughs> he says, he's like, actually, the actions are just a symptom of the root of evil that is in you. So if you even think about, have sexual thoughts about a woman that's not your wife, that's evil. If you even think about taking revenge on the person that hurt you, you never do it, but you think about it, that's just as evil. And you're like, what the heck? This is, this is brutal. And so it just feels like, hey, we can't even try. We can't make it. So why even try? We're just going to fail. And here's the thing. It is impossible for a human being to live a joyful life if they are constantly in guilt. Have you figured that out by now? Have you ever been stuck? And you're just like, it grinds at you. So we all have different mechanisms that we activate at different times of our life. It's just purely instinctual just to get out of living in perpetual guilt. One of them that I mentioned is we just find people who we believe to be worse than us, and we just compare ourselves to them so that we can feel pride and take comfort in ourselves. That's one of our first instincts. I'm wrong, uh, but I don't want to be sitting that wrong, so I'm just going to find somebody who's more wrong, and then I'll feel better. Or, I mean, think about the fights that you have with the people closest to you. Now, don't elbow people, and let's just stay focused here. But think about it, right? You'd screw up, and in my case, my wife comes to me, you screwed up, and what's my first thought? Well, it, it, well you did this three weeks ago, and we just take it right back to something they did because we can't live in that guilt. We can't just own up to that guilt, right? Sometimes it's three years ago because we're really desperate, Okay, I screwed up, but three years ago, it's like, wait a minute, we're talking about right now. We can't live in guilt. Another way that we just instinctively get out of guilt is we just ignore certain areas of our lives. We just convince ourselves that, you know what, God understands, and we connect them to trauma, family of origin, personality type. And so let me just, let's just, everybody just understand that I just got to be this way. This is who I am. It's how I'm built. Mm. It's still going to tear you up. You can excuse it away. You can make all the self-analysis and self-awareness, and that's a good thing, by the way, to start figuring things out. But self-awareness doesn't cure nothing. It's still going to tear you up. 
right? But it's easier to live in this, I'm excusing it, instead of living in the guilt. But whatever way that we get out of guilt, at its root, it's a denial of the true power of sin that is in our minds, our hearts, and our souls. We're very aware of the complex and corrupted sinful nature in other people, but we're good. I got a little problems, but I'm good. And that deception is the root of the most consistent suffering that you and I deal with on a daily basis. I'm going to say that again. There's a lot of suffering that we all go through in life. Some people suffer worse than others because of who they are in a particular society. But that deception of sin that you live in and I live in is the root of the most consistent pain that you deal with every day. When I was a young man starting to follow Jesus, it was actually right after I kind of got, you know, the shattering, I'm not going to be an Olympian kind of happened. You know, when you go humble, you go to God. So <laughs> I went to God and I'm 1920 and I was being mentored by an older leader in the faith. It was really tough at first because I was a mess. We would read the scripture and I was shocked because I was like, wait, 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 that, that's wrong? What I'm doing in my life, that's wrong? Wait, so God doesn't like this? I mean, it was just like every week, like how I was dealing with alcohol how I was dealing with women, how I was dealing with money, how I was thinking about ambition, how I spent my time, all of my self-focus. I mean, it was like every week another body blow to the deception because I genuinely thought at 1920, hey, I'm a pretty nice guy. But the Word of God exposed me as someone with nice intentions Someone who does nice things every once in a while, but who fundamentally lives a very self-focused, slave-to-my-desires kind of life. Anybody else in recovery for that? Anybody? Okay, I'm by myself. Okay, thank you. I got, I, got, I got two. All right, there we go. Okay, good. So I worked on it with Jesus, and a year later, I was a lot different. It is amazing what happens when you just get straight up honest, no more excuses, and you give that to Jesus. A year later, I was a different guy. And I remember sitting down with my mentor saying, hey man, thank you, you've invested in me this past year, you've showed me the word of God, you've showed me how God wants me to live my life, you've shown me my mistakes, and you've helped me change a lot. I think I'm all good now. I'm a different guy, and so now I just wanna help other people, and I wanna free you from helping me so you can help other people. I'm good. And there was this pause, and <laughs> nice smile. He, just, he was such a great godly man. He said, Chris, you have come a long way, and I'm amazed at how you've changed, but what you just said tells me that you're still deceived by sin. You're, what's going on in wanting me to get out of your life is you're pull, and nobody to focus on you and you just focus on others is you're pulling back from accountability. You're, you're, you're pulling back from somebody else helping you into the depths of your motivations and your actions. You're thinking you've arrived after just one year, and that is sin. That's the worst kind of sin. It's, it's still very much alive in you. There was a lot of awkward silence after he said that. Needless to say, he stayed my mentor. <laughs> and still to this day, do I have people in my life that help me examine and shine a light into the corners where I have constructed my most elaborate justifications and allowances. So, Let's take a closer look at this text and ask yourself, when's the last time you used the language of Scripture to describe uh, your, yourself to others, let alone just to your own self? The second half of verse 14 says, 
The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. That's strong language, a slave to sin. Have you ever described yourself in that way? I am in shackles to this particular evil. It owns me. How about verse 15? I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I do what I hate. That's a strong statement. Can you own that in yourself? Just last week, I uh, officiated the funeral of my aunt. Uh, you know, it's always hard to be the pastor in your family. So I'm grieving, but and as I, I shared, my, my aunt went through horrendous abuse. My aunt, my father, my uncles, they were all uh, foster kids. And her foster father and the foster family just abused her in horrendous ways in her childhood. And it took her her entire life to forgive uh, these foster parents, understandably. Last 20 years, I would talk to her every once in a while, and the pain was there. And we'd talk about forgiveness and letting go of, so they, can, so they no longer affect your life. But it just, understandably, took a while. But in an amazing uh, deal is right at the end of her life, she forgave. It was this beautiful thing. And I was giving testimony to her as this incredible woman who received the forgiveness of Jesus at the end of her life and forgave the people who hurt her so badly. And I'm teaching on it, and I'm saying this is her, the way that she needs to inspire us. And on the day of her funeral, one of my family members really hurt me. You know, it was nothing compared to what my aunt went through. It was just a little hurt, right? They took advantage of my kindness. They deceived me in a small way. I mean, looking back, it's the kind of hurt that should take about a day to forgive. I mean, you got to get through the hurt. It's not like you can just forgive automatically. This one was like a day. My aunt's hurt years and years and years. Mine, just a day. Yet for me, it took me days to forgive. Days to forgive. I remember on the third day, I was before Jesus, and I was like, Jesus, what is wrong with me? I know in my mind that I should forgive. I just talked about it with my aunt. If she can forgive that, how can I not forgive this? And I remember just going, Jesus, I know that I have hurt this same family member multiple times and they have forgiven me. I have forgiven them in the past. What is wrong with me? Why am I still obsessing over giving them the silent treatment and wanting to hurt them back? Take this poison out of me. That was where I was at. I feel like finally by the end of this week, because I'm in this scripture, it's been lifted off of me, and I can fully forgive. But is that the language? Is that the posture that you take when you're examining your own soul? Verse 22 to 23 says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. There is another power within me that is at war with my mind. Do you use that language? Not the, yeah, I've got some temptations, man, I'm human. I get distracted, I stupid thoughts at times, you know, I get weak at times. No, 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 the Bible says there is a power that is within you that is at war with you trying to destroy your life. One of the nastiest characteristics of sin and evil is that it is deceptive. That's its core nature. Remember Jesus, when he talks about the devil, he says he is the father of lies. At the core of the devil is deception. So all of evil, all of sin that's in us is deceptive. It, see, it doesn't want us to know how deep it is in us so that we will not do whatever is necessary to overcome it. 
See, an enemy that you refuse to acknowledge is an enemy that will always thrive. Can I get an amen? Isn't that just a life lesson right there, right? And so when we let our surrounding culture uh, put language to our bad actions and thoughts, when we sort of uh, our own kind of self-pride put language to our bad actions and thoughts, what we get is language that describes the sin in us as like a spiritual cold that just needs a little bit of rest and vitamin C. Hey, man, you're stressed out. You're kind of getting angry. So just get some rest because, you know. But when we use the Bible's language to describe what's actually going on in our mind and our heart, we get the equivalent to a spiritual cancer. Sin is a horrible spiritual sickness that is so complex and widespread in all of us and in our society, and we are powerless to defeat it. See, there's all these different ways that we experience this evil and sin, this cancer-like stuff all around us. There is uh, the family of origin that we grow up in. Right, So every family we grow up in, there are sins that we are just exposed to that have been passed from fathers and mothers to sons and daughters. And then they grow up and they pass that. Ways that we do life that is just corrupt and, and bad. And it just, it's part of our upbringing. And so now we have it. There is growing up in a unique society uh, right, that we live in, uh, the unique culture that we grow up in, or the cultures that are around us, and how that just has evil that affects us that we live amongst. There's also just the sin that we are individually born with. Psalm 51.5 says, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. See, Scripture is very clear that we are all born with natural aspects that are in the image of God and good and beautiful and wonderful. Somebody give me an amen. This is a tough talk, so we got to, you know, let's just amen. We are all born in the image of God. You have a unique part of your life that is beautiful and wonderful. Your personality, your way of thinking, some instincts that you have. But the Scripture is also clear that we are all born with natural aspects that are corrupted, in rebellion from God, that are not in alignment with God. It's the consequence of being a part of the human species. This duality of our identity is passed down from us from one generation of sinners to the next. But see, then, there is then all of that, but then there is just the sin that we choose into that has nothing to do with anything except our own adult life rebellion where we have just said, I am the better one to call the shots, not anybody else, not even God, and so I just choose to do what I want, and that right there is just our own sin and rebellion. So, man, it's all around us. We're dealing with it. We're born with it. It's in our families. It's in society, cultures. It's in our own personal rebellion, what we choose. So now here's the point of the teaching today. We're starting a series to reflect on the different forms of suffering that we all have to experience as human beings. There's the suffering of loss and disappointment. There's the suffering of poverty that many people have to grind through. The suffering of persecution or social mockery. The suffering of systemic oppression. The suffering of racism. The suffering of feeling out of control to an unpredictable natural world. And we are going to get to all those specific kinds of suffering. But we're starting with the suffering of sin because I would argue that the Scripture is clear that that is at the root of all the suffering. At the root of every kind of suffering is sin. And personal sin, the sin that we choose into, is the most persistent, oppressive, life-destroying kind of suffering that we deal with on a daily basis. 
Every kind of suffering is hard to deal with. But let me tell you, the first step to reducing suffering in your life is to deal with your own personal sin on a consistent daily basis. It's what gives you the most stress and dysfunction and difficulty. Am I an anti-racist? Am I an anti-misogynist? Am I an anti-systemic oppression? Yes, to all of them because I'm anti-sin. If the Bible is my authoritative guide to life, if the Bible shapes my worldview, then I understand how pervasive and complex and entrenched sin is in this world. It is entrenched as a power in every individual. Nobody escapes it. Some people want to think, they have this worldview that if you have more wealth and more success in the world, then you have less sin. Garbage. Some people think that if you are poor and have more suffering, then you have less sin. Garbage. Sin does not care what you do, how you grow up, what you experience. Every human being has this power of evil in them. And so, logically, when human beings come together to form and run systems of government, uh, the legal system, the educational system, the economic system, those systems are going to be entrenched with the power of evil. They're also going to have something of the image of God in them, right? That's just... So, you know, uh, I, I am not shocked anymore by the news and by evil people not getting consequences for nothing, that, uh, not getting the consequences for what they deserve and innocent people getting consequences for what they don't deserve. I'm not shocked because the Scripture has given me this worldview, but I'm affected deeply by it. Week in and week out, it is a weight as a human being to see how we are destroying each other individually, to eat individual families, systems of government, systems of education, I mean, everything. I mean, just this week, you know, some of us were, you know, watching this trial with this young kid, 17, during, you know, one of the riots uh, after the unrest. He just decides to grab a, a rifle and go out there, and he ends up killing two people, injuring another and shooting everybody. Now, this is what's crazy. And, 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 he, and then he, he's, they decided he was innocent. No, not, not guilty. And immediately, in our sin as a human species, everybody went to their political sides to use this trial to kind of prop up that they are more in the right. And it was incredible. I mean, this dude, you know, this white dude, he, he goes out there. It's like the people who are like, hey, you got to trust the system. The system said he's innocent. you got to trust the system. They're saying that while, they're at, while their hero is a dude that did not trust the system. The dude took a gun and said, you know, forget the police and the National Guard. I'm going to go shoot some people. Well, let's just step back. That is sin. It is corruption. And come on, y'all. We all know if that dude was not white, it would be different. There's been enough going on. You see, there is corruption in the system. And to step back and go, no, the system is great. There is nothing wrong with the system. That is the deception of sin. If you find yourself politically on one side or the other, Republican or Democrat, and you are all right and they are all wrong, you're utterly deceived. The Republican Party, the Democratic Party, is corrupted by sin because it's made up of people. The, the rich and the poor... The communities are corrupted by sin because they're made up of people. And so the systems are sin. Yes, this trial was complex and the juries had these specific parameters in the law and all this stuff. 
but it's corrupted by sin. And so I can stand and say, yes, I believe the scripture is clear. We should submit to the system because if we all just decided to do our own thing, it would be chaos. But while I submit as a Christian, I'm going to work to fix it. I'm not going to sit and go, it's fine. It's totally great. Right? I don't understand this sentiment that to be patriotic, you will never criticize this country and all you'll do is say it's the greatest country in the world. That's ridiculous. That's like a parent telling their child, you are perfect. Everything about you is wonderful. Whatever you want, you can have it. You're raising a monster. That's the same thing when it comes to a family. If you sit back and go, my family is all right, your family is going to, right? And a society, right? We, we can address systems with the biblical worldview and a humility to go, yes, I'm going to criticize the system, but I'm going to do it from a place of humility. I am not more righteous than anybody else in the system. I am living in a place of humility, and I'm saying, I'm taking my medicine. How about y'all take your medicine? That's the posture. The path to reducing the suffering that I as an individual experience and reducing the suffering that my society experiences it starts with a right ownership of the severity of sin in my life. That's where it starts. We suffer more because we let ourselves be deceived. Deceived. We don't think it's that bad. Can you imagine how frustrating your doctor would be if you kept disagreeing with her in her diagnosis that you have cancer and you keep telling her, no, I'm not doing the treatment because I just have a cold. God is holding out a prescription for our healing, but we keep rejecting it because we say, I'm fine. I just need some rest and vitamin C. I don't need to go to church every week, just once a month. I don't need to get involved in a life group and confess my sin because I got this, God. I'm okay. It's just a little bit. I don't need to read my Bible every day and pray every day because I'm not that bad. Those people, they need to get to church every week. Am I, am I, am I, am I, are we okay? Take a, take, take a breath. I promise you it's going to end well, okay? The first step in minimizing that negative effects is owning up to what it really is. Man, if you want to be free from the daily pressures and stress and performance, it's stop lying to yourself. A large part of the suffering in your mind will go away when you just realize it's nobody's fault. I'm a mess. And I cannot change this on my own. That's liberating. For me, you know, when I first got this clarity on my life to really see what's going on in heart is when uh, I started to build real friendships with people in recovery. I remember the first time I sat down to pray with somebody as a young pastor. I found out later that this brother was in recovery. But he came to get prayer. And I mean, I, when he started talking, it was biblical about his sin. He was using strong language, and he was so, there was no excuses, there was no justifications, he was free to admit it, and, I, and he's like, I'm here, I need prayer because I need Jesus. And I realized instantly that I was sitting in the presence of holiness and humility and liberation. You see, we have this, you, you, you grow up in the church too long, and you start to get twisted, you, you get this pharisaical view of holiness, which says, yes, the more I'm with Jesus, the less sin I have, and the, and, and the better I am, and all those people are, yeah, but I'm doing good. But the longer you're with the biblical Jesus, the more humble you get. That's what actually the path is. See, we start with God in a place of like a rebellious teenager. 
And the scripture says you got to be a child to receive the love of God. And the more we go with Jesus, we're not supposed to grow into a 30-year-old grown man that just comes and sees God once a month to check in because I'm part of the family. We actually, as we grow with God, we're supposed to go get younger and younger and start to realize, I'm five years old. And if I get away from mom and dad, I'm dead. I'm going to destroy my life. That's holiness. And I remember, man, as I started to build friendships, I remember this brother that I walked with, he was in a, a recovery for eating, uh, uh, over, addictive overeating, emotional eating, and then I'm around people who are in recovery for sexual addiction, and then drug addiction, alcohol, and I found myself in true honesty. Like, and, and this is absolute refusal to perform, or to hide, or to impress, or to be superficial, and it started to change me. And then what also changed me is a few really close Christian friendships where we would gather regularly to look at a comprehensive list of the sin and the symptoms of sin that the Scripture gives us. Have you ever looked at a whole list of sin from the Scripture? I mean, you're just like, okay, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. It's our instinct. We only seem to read the Scripture that we don't do. Yeah, that's right. That is sin, God. Get them. You look at the whole Bible and you're like, oh, my goodness. And we would get, we gathered together and we would let all that whole list, to, and we would just take turns confessing and examining our week, owning up to where our selfishness was growing. Pride, comparison, greed, materialism, rebellion from God, apathy for God. You know, and every once in a while we would vent about how others were hurting us, but we'd always help each other get back to like, okay, let's own up to it, man. Let's go. Let's get humble. Here's a good litmus test to see if you're in a healthy place with Jesus and, and not being deceived by sin. People hurt us. They sin on us. That's, suf that's suffering. We need to bring that up to trusted people and get prayer for that and help through that. But are you talking about people hurting you more than you're talking about your own sin? The litmus test is, are you balanced in that you are as honest about where you're screwing it up and where you're in evil as much as other people doing evil on you? Now, next week, I'm going to give part two of this talk. Please come next week. If you sat through this one, next week's even better. Okay, we're going to really get to the good stuff next week because we're going to talk about how Jesus helps us overcome the cancer of sin in our lives. But the first step right here from the Scripture is to de to, into decreasing pain and suffering in our life is to surrender our self-esteem and self-confidence. Not that we feel bad about ourselves, but in terms of I built my own righteousness, Right? And just expose what is there to God and then expose it, as the Bible says, to somebody in the Christian community. Because you do not, here's the thing. The foundation of sin's power on our life is shame. And that's why we build up these, I'm okay. And we can get honest with God, that's the first step. But God commands us in the scripture to confess to others because then the power of shame is finally destroyed. Because the sin, it plays on our minds. It says, no, no, if you tell somebody, then they're going to judge you. Then they're going to gossip about you. Now, don't tell the wrong person. You know what I mean? Be smart about it. There are people that are going to gossip about it. And don't, you know, boundaries are good. But it's all lies. And so the sin is telling you that so that you suppress it. Because it wants to keep growing and feeding. Because it knows as soon as you expose it, it's going to die. And so the Lord tells you, get into that Christian community. It's a community of recovery. We are all in recovery. And then you say, here's my particular kind of sin cancer. You might have that cancer in your, uh, your bones. 
you might have it in your blood, you might have it in your lungs, we all got it, so we can't judge anybody. And now I'm going to bring it out, and then when I hear the, the love and the grace and they pray for me, I'm like, I'm totally known, and I'm not hiding, and I'm totally loved and accepted. That's where we start. Worship team, come on up. Our section ends with this statement. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? After all that we've talked about, is that not good news? Can I get an amen to that? Right? There is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. Here is how it works. This is actually what the Bible says about our sin. Good people don't go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Sinful people make a decision to surrender to Jesus or not. Sinful people are in heaven who have given their life to Jesus. When you stand before God on that great day, he's going to open up the, the proverbial book of your life. And he, he's going to look at all the mistakes and all the bad thoughts and all the things. And he's not going to be like, we've got to find some more good stuff to overpower all this bad stuff. Because I've got to try to get you in. So let's just see if we can... That was kind of good. No, he ain't going to do that. He's going to be like, oh my gosh, you're a mess. But you surrendered your sin and honesty to Jesus. So let me just take Jesus' life. That's now your life. Oh, you're in, baby. You're in. We're going to next week, we're going to look at how we can follow the Spirit of God to actually overcome the power of sin in our lives, to actually live victoriously. But right now, what I want us to end in is that there is some sober truths and some great truths, and it's all for our freedom. You are more messed up than you can ever understand. you got to own that. You are more messed up than you can ever understand, but at the same time, you are loved by Jesus more than you can ever comprehend. You are so loved by him. Day in and day out, when you come with honesty, he's got the love. And he is saying, no, no, your identity is not in your mistakes. Your identity is not in the power of evil that is in you. It does not control the destiny of your life anymore because you have surrendered to me. Guess what? Even though you are a hot mess and you're broken, I, as you keep surrendering to me, I call the shots on how your life goes. That is the rock-solid truth. We can tear up the spiritual resumes. We can tear up, throw the masks away. I am a broken sinner, and I will be until I get to the other side and I'm finally free of this nastiness in me. Let's live in that. Stand with me, church. Every week, every week, it is good news. Every week, I want, I want to encourage us to memorize a scripture to counteract the lies in our head. And I'm asking you to take courage this week to meet with somebody to say, can I just tell you everything and can you pray the love of Jesus over me? I want to be free of deception. The scripture I want us to uh, memorize this week is Romans 8.1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I like to take scripture and I like to make it personal. I like to use it as a prayer. I like to take God's words and pray his words and declare his words. There's power in that. And so I look at Romans 8.1, and what I'm going to say is, so now I am not condemned, for I belong to Christ Jesus. That's what's true. I am not condemned, for I belong to Christ Jesus, so I can stop hiding and stop pretending. I am not condemned because I belong to Christ Jesus. As we worship 
I want to encourage each of us to step into this sacred moment. There will be a couple leaders. I want to invite you all to come and worship up here on the side. And they're here and they're ready for you if you would like to go and pray. If you would like to receive prayer. What we, right? And you, you can feel free to confess anything. And it's just we're all in recovery here. Some of us might just need to right now just start and worship God and just confess to him. And then I would ask, ask God for who is it that I'm going to try to talk to this week to just get out of this, this grind of performance and pretending. Some of us just need to worship the goodness of his love that he has made a way. Through death on the cross, he came down and he took the pain and the suffering that we all deserved and he took it upon himself and now he's free to forgive day in and day out. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Would you give us the courage to reject the deception of sin? Would you give us that freedom to just live honestly? Would you give us that freedom? Would you help us build a community of recovery that just lives in your grace and lives in your love? Come, Lord Jesus. We belong to you. We're yours. Heal us. Give us the medicine. Give us the courage to take it. Come.